Chapter 20 Uncle and Niece When her father had gone, Sybil addressed a note to Mr. Burton, which read, I will call upon you at your club for a private interview at twelve o'clock precisely. As all your future depends upon this meeting, you will not fail to keep the appointment. She signed this message with the initials S.C., and Mr. Burton received it as he was about to start for Dominguez Field in his motor car. The messenger had had a lively chase all over town to catch him. Burton read and reread the epistle carefully. He was thoughtful for a moment, and then ordered his man to drive him to the club. S.C., he mused. Who on earth could that be? A woman's handwriting, of course. Crude unformed. When women intrigue, there's usually a reason for it. Better find out what's in the wind, even at the loss of a little valuable time. That's the safest plan. He reached his club at exactly twelve o'clock, and heard a woman inquiring for him at the door. He met her, bowed, and without a word led her to his own private sitting room on the third floor. The woman, or was it a girl, was, he observed, heavily veiled, but as soon as they were alone, she removed the veil and looked at him steadfastly from a pair of dark, luminous eyes. Burton shifted uneasily in his chair. He had never seen this girl before, yet there was something singularly familiar in her features. Be good enough to tell me who you are, he said in a gentle tone he invariably employed toward women. I have granted you this interview at your request, but... I am very busy today and have little time to spare for you. I am your niece, she replied slowly and deliberately. Oh, he exclaimed, then paused to observe her curiosity. So, you are my sister Marion's daughter. Exactly. I knew she had a child, for she often wrote me about it, but her early death and my estrangement with your father prevented me from seeing you until now. Your mother, my dear, was a, a noble woman. You are not telling the truth, said Sybil quietly. She was quite the contrary. He started and flushed, then replied somewhat confused by the girl's scornful regard. At least I loved her. She was my only sister. And your accomplice. What? He stared aghast, then quickly recovered himself and said, You were rather too young when she died to judge your mother's character correctly. That is true, but I remember her with abhorrence. Your father, on the other hand, observed Burton, his face hardening, might well deserve your hatred and aversion. He is a scoundrel. I have heard him say so, replied Sybil, smiling. But I do not believe it. In any event, his iniquity could not equal that of the Burtons. We are complimentary, said her uncle, returning the smile with seeming amusement. But I regret to say I have no time to further converse with you today. Will you call again if you have anything special to say to me? No, replied Sybil. You must listen to me today. Tomorrow would... Tomorrow? You may be in prison she interrupted. It is not easy to interview criminals in jail, is it? He looked at her now with more than curiosity. His gaze was searching, half-fearful, inquiring. You speak foolishly, he said. 
Yet you understand me perfectly, she returned. I confess that I do not. He coldly persisted. Then let me explain. When my mother died, I was about eight years of age. But I was old for my years, and on her deathbed, your sister placed in my hands a sealed envelope, directing me to guard it carefully and secretly, and not open it until I was eighteen years of age, and then not unless I had in some way incurred the enmity and persecution of my uncle, George Burton. She said it was her confession. He sat perfectly still, as if turned to stone, his eyes fixed full upon the girl's face. With an effort, he said in a soft voice, Have I persecuted you? Indirectly, yes. But you cannot be eighteen yet. No, she admitted. I am only seventeen. He breathed a sigh of relief. Then, But I'm half Burton, she continued, and therefore have little respect for the wish of others, especially when they interfere with my own desires. I kept the letter my mother gave me, but had no interest in opening it until the other day. And you read it then? Two or three times, perhaps half a dozen, with great care. Where is that letter now? Where you cannot find it, clever as you are. I must say, I have great respect for your cleverness, my dear uncle, since reading that letter. How paltry the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde seems after knowing you. He moved uneasily in his seat, but the man was on the defensive now, and eyed his accuser steadily. You seem very much like your mother, he suggested reflectively. But you are wrong. I am more like my father. He shrugged his shoulders. What matter, child? You have a rare inheritance on either side. They sat in silence a moment, and then he said, You have not yet confided to me your errand. True, I have a request to make which I am sure you will comply with. You must stop annoying the canes. He smiled at her. You have mocked them for your own prey, you and your precious father? Yes, your persecution must cease, and at once. He seemed thoughtful. I have an end in view, an important end, he said. I know. You want to force Orissa to marry you, but that is absurd. She is scarcely half your age, and she despises you. He flushed at this. Nevertheless. I won't have it, cried Sybil sternly. And another thing, you must withdraw your aeroplane from the aviation meet tomorrow. Must? I use the word advisedly. I have the power to compel you to obey me, and I intend to use it. He sat watching her, with his eyes slightly narrowed. Sybil was absolutely composed. Your mother, my dear, he presently remarked, was a charming woman, but inclined to be visionary and imaginative. I have no idea what she wrote in that letter, but if it is anything that asperses my character, my integrity or fairness, it is untrue and can only be accounted for by the fact that the poor creature was driven insane by your father and did not know what she was doing. Oh, indeed, the girl retorted. Is it not true, then, that you were convicted in Baltimore twenty years ago of a dastardly murder and robbery and sentenced by the court to life imprisonment? 
Is it not true that my mother at the time contrived your escape, and secreted you so cleverly that the officers of the law could never find you? That is not true, he declared, speaking with apparent effort. The letter states that you were arrested and convicted under the name Harcliffe, that when an active search for you was finally abandoned, you went with my mother to Chicago, and there began a new life under your right name of Burton, and that your sister met and married my father. Although you opposed the match bitterly, fearing she would betray your secret to her husband, but she never did. That's not true, he repeated. The whole story is but a tissue of lies. Then I will telegraph to the police of Baltimore that the escaped prisoner, Harcliffe, whom they have been seeking these twenty years, is here in Los Angeles, and tell them to send at once someone to identify him. You need not be afraid if the story is false. They will come, I will point you out to them, and they will declare you are not the man. Then I will believe you, but not before. He sat a long time, his head upon his hand, looking at her reflectively. At the same time, her dark eyes were fixed upon him with equal intentness. By and by, she laughed aloud, but there was no mirth in the sound. Have I not my mother's daughter and my clever uncle's own niece? She said, as if he had spoken. You cannot quiet me by murder, for in that case my revenge is fully provided for. I know you, and I did not venture upon this disagreeable errand unprepared. There is a plain-clothes man at the street door. Who, if I do not emerge from this club in... She looked at her watch. Fifteen minutes. We'll summon assistance. Guard every exit, and then search your rooms for my body. The doorkeeper has my name, and knows that I am here. Therefore, to injure me now would be to thrust your head into the hangman's noose. After this day you shall be very considerate of my welfare, for from this point on any harm that befalls me will lead to your prompt arrest and disclosure of your secret. He threw out his hands with a despairing, helpless gesture. What a demon you are! he cried. I believe I am, said Sybil slowly. I hate myself for being obliged to act in this dramatic fashion, to threaten and bully like a coward. But being blessed with so unscrupulous an uncle, I cannot accomplish my purposes in a more dignified way. State your demands, then, he said. I have stated them. To withdraw my aeroplane from the aviation meet would mean my ruin. I, I have sold my real estate and brokerage business and invested my money in aviation. I positively cannot withdraw now. You must. To whine of ruin is absurd. I know that my father paid you a quarter of a million for your mine. You also obtained without doubt a good sum for your business. So far, you cannot have invested more than a few thousand in your attempt to steal Stephen Kane's invention. My advice, sir, is to get away from here as soon as you can. Go to London or Paris, where there is more interest in aviation than here, and make a business of flying, if you will. But the Kane device is fully protected by foreign patents, and any infringement will be promptly prosecuted. You are merciless, he complained. You will find me so. I am a member of the Aero Club. I cannot, without arousing suspicion, withdraw my aeroplane from this meet. 
If you do not, I will telegraph to Baltimore. The threat seemed to crush him, and still any further remonstrances. Very well, he returned. If you have finished your errand, please leave me. I must consider my position. She rose, cast one scornful glance at him, and walked out of the room, leaving him seated with bowed head, dejected, and utterly defeated.